Well, this Sunday and next is all we have in the, in the book of Luke, a series that we started about this time last year. Um, and then we've got some new things uh, coming out. Uh, so we, will, we typically publish a list of sermons that are coming up. Uh, those should be available next week. And you'll be able to see the sermons that are coming up for the, the spring term, so to speak. And uh, we encourage you to read ahead and, and read the scriptures and study them and meditate them ahead of being here because it's ultimately God's word that builds and shapes and changes God's people. Uh, but this morning we are going to be in Luke 24, the last chapter of the book of Luke, and we're going to be in verses 36 through 49. So if you want to turn, click, swipe, tap, or do what you do to get there, um, that's where we're going to be. If you need a Bible, there should be one um, under the chairs in front of you, and it's page 575 on one of those Bibles. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Uh, at my alma mater, uh, Taylor University, there's a, a modern bell tower that stands on campus. And Built into two sides of the, the base of that tower are two phenomenally bright lights. And at evening, these lights turn on, sending two beams high into the night sky. But the beams are not parallel. Rather, they are angled ever so slightly, with the result that at a point high above the towers, the beams appear to just intersect before disappearing into the faintness of the night sky. The beams are a representative of the school's motto, lux et fides, at least that's my best Latin, uh, light and faith. Light that is in the sense, I think, of the light of reason. It's a, it's a visual symbol of the idea that faith and reason do not ultimately contradict one another. But if either path is followed rightly and far enough, it will eventually find that they intersect and prove to be entirely compatible. Jay Kessler, the longtime president of the university and the current president emeritus, was fond of encouraging students that we weren't going to turn over a rock and find a monster there that would swallow our faith. It was a conviction that could encourage students and faculty to pursue robust intellectual curiosity without sacrificing a robust and abiding Christian faith. But sometimes reason 
or at least our understanding, stands at the mercy of faith. One of my philosophy professors at Taylor, uh, soon after the birth of his first son, uh, maybe overly confident at the time, jokingly assured us that he was ready to handle the incessant why questions. If you've ever spent time with a niece or a nephew or a little kid, you know the why series of questions. You, they ask you about something, you give an answer, and they ask you why that that's true, and why, and why, and why. Every one of my four boys has gone through the, the why series on occasion. And this new father, who had a son who didn't talk yet, decided that he could solve any of these problems when they come up by creating a list of fundamental axioms. And he would just tell his son, it's fundamental axiom number one on the list in the basement, son. That's, that's the answer. That's the, there's no why beyond that. Fundamental axioms are starting assumptions about our universe. Things we take on, the measure, on a measure of faith because without them we can't think straight. Like the idea that math always works. That's a fundamental axiom. That somehow math won't change at 2.30 this afternoon. How do you know it won't change at 2.30 this afternoon? You don't know that. You take it on a measure of faith. It's a starting assumption you have. But if we don't make that assumption, your entire world falls apart. You know, you'd never have clocks. You'd never have automobiles. You'd never be able to make change at the grocery store. Heck, even the prices on products at the grocery store would be meaningless if math didn't stay the same. But you take that on a measure of faith. Yet without that measure of faith, your understanding of the world would be pretty bleak. But what difference does our understanding make on the world? Well, for, for Socrates, to know the good is to do the good. In that great philosopher's view, once a person rightly understood that he would act rightly. And a person who acts wrongly, well, she only demonstrates that she doesn't understand properly in the first place. Now, I think that's a pretty optimistic view of the human will. I think history and our own experience are replete with examples of people who know full well what is good, but fail to act on it. In fact, our criminal justice system is built on that basis. We, if, if a person can make an honest case that they really did not understand what was right or what was good or what was wrong or what was evil, it can be a positive criminal defense in many cases to get them off. But still, I think Socrates was on to something. There is a connection between our understanding and our action. And Luke in this passage, I think, would agree. In this passage, we're going to see that faith and reason, faith and understanding, lead to action. Faith and understanding lead to action. And, and those three, faith, understanding, and action, also serve as a, a broad outline of my sermon this morning. So you can kind of bullet point and know how much longer you have to sit there from that. So the first of these, this passage begins where we left off last week. Jesus had appeared to two disciples on the road between Jerusalem and Emmaus on the first day of the week. But those disciples didn't recognize Jesus until they got to Emmaus, a little village about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And when they did, they returned all the way back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples. And when they got there, they found that the disciples were already gathered and talking about the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to Peter. And depending on what time the men got back to Jerusalem and how long everyone was talking before the events of verse 36, um, it's either late in the night on Sunday, April the 5th, AD 33, or early in the morning on Monday, April the 6th. 
And this is when we read, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, on one level, it might seem a little bit odd that these disciples who were just talking about Jesus being resurrected and appearing to Jesus might be frightened and startled and thinking that they were seeing a ghost. But you know what, though, Luke, Luke doesn't ever betray the disciples as having perfect faith. He doesn't try to make them out to be saints who just understood everything perfectly right away. He paints them as they were, real human beings. They're imperfect people, and I suspect they acted much the way we would. But that said, only, only Peter and Cleopas and Cleopas's traveling companion to Emmaus had actually seen Jesus before this moment. So it could just be that the general mood of the room was fright, since most were getting this information secondhand. And then, you know, there's the fact that this is the middle of the night by all likelihood. And a dead man just showed up out of nowhere. And I think that's probably sufficiently creepy. I'm going to allow them a little startle and fright. But Jesus knows that there's more than just fright at play. And so he asks, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, that's not an active doubting, an active doubting that would say, like, I doubt that that's true. That's not the type of doubting that's at play here. It's the doubting of having conflicting ideas in one's head. The question, is this true? Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. What's going on here? But then the question becomes, what, what are they doubting? What, why are they doubting? And are they doubting that this is really Jesus? That, well, that doesn't seem likely to me. After all, they, they recognize him as Jesus. I think the doubt goes back to the idea that they're seeing maybe a disembodied spirit, maybe a ghost. They think that they're seeing a phantom or something. In other words, they're not doubting that this is Jesus. They're doubting whether he is resurrected. And that's an important point. Jesus did not merely spiritually appear to the disciples. Instead, his body was resurrected. This is why Jesus appeals to his hands and his feet. They are the, the extremities of his body that, that he can hold out to his disciples. And they're also the part of him that's probably not clothed so they can see that there's flesh, there's bone, there's you know, humanness to him, there's physicality to him. And still they're marveling and, and perhaps in shock disbelief. So Jesus asks if they have anything to eat and they have some fish and Jesus eats with them. Ghosts don't eat. So this apparently finally persuades them that Jesus is there in the flesh and bone. At this point they have faith. One of the things that I, I bring up a lot and I harp on a lot is that uh, Christian faith, Biblical faith really has two components to it. It's both belief and trust. It's both intellectual and relational. And if either one of those two things is, is missing, one doesn't have Christian faith. You might have some type of faith, but it's not real biblical faith. Uh, and at the beginning of this passage, many of the disciples are lacking one or the other. I suspect they're lacking belief. In other words, most of them don't truly believe the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. They would be able to trust in this fact if they believed this fact, but in fact they don't believe this fact. 
Now, it's possible they believe it, but they just don't trust it. They believed Cleopas and Peter that Jesus had resurrected, but they were not able to trust in that fact when push comes to shove and Jesus showed up in the dead of night. But whatever the case, at this point, they have belief and trust in Jesus' resurrection. They have a Christian biblical faith. Jesus was there in the flesh as real as you and me. And they came to have faith. And the fact that Jesus resurrected in the flesh is no little point. A lot of bad theology comes from not recognizing this, forgetting this, denying this, missing this point. From a Christian perspective, it means that the body is important. Jesus does not come back to us as a force ghost, like in the rise of Skywalker. He comes back in the flesh. Our flesh is made by God. It's, it's designed by God, and it will last beyond this life. And because of that, it's worthy of our respect and our consideration. That's why, and this isn't to say that any other practice is necessarily wrong, but it's why customarily Christians have traditionally buried their dead rather than incinerate them or any other number of practices. We believe that those bodies are precious and will rise. What does that mean for Christians? Well, it certainly means that we should care about our bodies. They're not disposable commodities. They're not something that merely gets us through this life and then are tossed aside. That's a fine idea for a pagan, but it's not a Christian idea. Instead, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And in chapter 9 of the same letter, he writes, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. See, this idea that fundamentally we are spiritual beings, or fundamentally, at our, at our most basic level, we're just a soul, it's not a Christian idea. That's a, that's a pagan idea. That comes to us from the world of paganism and Gnosticism. The Christian witness is that we are body-spirit beings, or what some theologians call a psychosomatic unity. You can file that away for your next holiday meal with family. But your body, your body, soul together in one. You are a unity. And in fact, there's a sense in the pages of Scripture that death, at least for the Christian, is a very unnatural state. It's like there's something wrong because we're, we're spiritually alive. We are with Jesus. That's the testimony of, of Scripture. So spiritually, there's a, there's a spiritual vitality to us, but our body is in the ground and separated from us, and there's something unnatural, unnatural and, and not quite right about that state of affairs that has to be remedied. And it will be, because it's a temporary state, because when Jesus returns, those bodies will rise. As Paul writes in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. 
So, Christian, care for your body. I know I've got work to do on this, and it's, there's work I've been doing on this, as some of you know, but it needs to be completed. Um, yet it's true, you know, it, it's true, yes, God can heal anything. And, and yes, it's true that your care of your body will not endanger your salvation. But your concern for your body is a demonstration that you believe what God has said about your body. And you believe that God cares about your body. And that it's a gift from him. And that it is holy and that it is good. That means like things like eating well. It means like getting appropriate exercise. It means getting appropriate sleep. Students, you need to wake up at a reasonable time. You need to go to bed at a reasonable time. Us older folks need to work out more because our metabolism is slowing down. But step back from that for a second. On a more fundamental level, this passage insists that we have faith in the resurrection of Jesus. One cannot be a follower of Jesus without holding this fact. Either Jesus rose bodily from the dead, or we are in no ways Christians. Either the resurrection took place and Jesus appeared to his disciples, or he didn't. If he did, he's the Messiah, and all of our values, and all of our life, and all of our concerns, and all of our passions, and all of our feelings need to be laid before his throne. And if he didn't, our entire Christian religion is worthless. There is no in between. You don't get to take a pass on this question. We must have faith in the resurrection of Jesus. It's also true that that brings us to our second point. Uh, it's also true that without faith, true faith in the resurrection of Jesus, we cannot have proper understanding. So Luke writes, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus is reinforcing that when he was with them, he had impressed upon them that the scriptures must be fulfilled about him. And there's a little bit of a sobering note there, isn't it? Jesus says, while I was still with you. Jesus had left them. It may have been for 72 hours, but there was a sense in which Jesus had never left them before, and he was in the grave for 72 or, or so hours, and, and, and he was leaving again in, in another sense. He would not be with them physically and speaking to them face-to-face, -face, as it were, for much longer. And so there's a, there's a transience to this scene. There's a passing away of this scene. It feels like a blip in time. And, and that's a bit sobering as he reminds his disciples that the time is short. And he talks about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is the Jewish way of dividing up the Old Testament. It's contained three sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. But in that section called the writings, the Psalms are by far the biggest percentage of that. And so he's just referring to the writings as the, the Psalms here. 
And, and we see last week how Jesus explained to Cleopas and the other disciple with him how all those scriptures, every drop of them, every bit of that Old Testament that we like to skip over in our Bible plans, really, truly points to Jesus. And it says, Jesus opens their mind to understand the scriptures. Until the disciples had faith in the resurrection, it was not possible for them to rightly understand the scriptures. But when they had faith in the resurrection, they could truly understand. Faith leads to understanding. Jesus says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Thus it is written. This is Jesus' way of saying scripture has said it and it's set, it's firm, it's immovable. And here Jesus points to three things that the scriptures have posited about him. And, and let's, let's take a look at that. Let's, let's spend a little time in the Old Testament this morning. First, that, that he should suffer. Where do the scriptures speak of the Messiah's suffering? Well, in this series, as, as some of our opposite testament texts that we read in our uh, Sunday mornings, we've, we've read, I believe, both of these texts in the, in the fall. And the two most obvious are, are Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. You can, you can turn there. I'm going to read significant chunks of, of both of them. Um, in Psalm 22, in part, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to, the, my, sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then Isaiah 53. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, 
and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall be his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's a long read. Psalm 22 was written more than 1,000 years before the death of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 53 was written about 700 years before Christ's death. They spoke of an anointed king and a servant of Yahweh who would suffer for the sake of God's people. So the scriptures demanded that the Christ must suffer. Second, Jesus said that the scriptures pointed clearly that the Messiah would rise from the dead. And, and the primary text that the New Testament looks at is Psalm 16, verses 9 through 10. Luke, in fact, cites this in the book of Acts. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shell or let your Holy One see corruption. Though this is a, a psalm of David, it was seen as looking forward to a greater king, an offspring of David, a son of David, who would be his descendant and yet be a greater king than all, the, the, the great anointed Messiah. Uh, the apostle Peter put it bluntly in Acts chapter 2. He said, brothers, I, can, I must say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So the Messiah must rise from the dead. Of course, Jesus' death and resurrection, we've looked at much in the last several weeks as we've brought the book of Luke to a conclusion. But what about that last point that Jesus makes? That last point that Jesus saw written in the scriptures. He said that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Well, among the, the places that Jesus may have been thinking about is Isaiah 49, where Yahweh says through the prophet, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. 
and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Let's pause for a moment, though, on what Jesus is saying, what the implications are that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. First, there's going to be a proclamation. There's going to be a preaching. There's a message. There's content that has to go out. And that message, secondly, concerns the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you're a sinner, let me suggest to you that you want your sins forgiven. Because if your sins are not forgiven, you will be judged for your sins. And you don't want that. As the author of Hebrews writes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing because the judgment you deserve is very, very severe. Sin is a crime or a wrongdoing, an offense. But you haven't offended your neighbor or your brother or your government, although any of those could be quite bad, depending on the circumstances. Instead, you've offended the God who made you, who has rights over you, who is worthy of all praise, all glory, all honor, all goodness from you, everything that you have. And your sins, however small you might feel they are, are immense because they've been committed, committed against an immense God. And so if there is forgiveness for the sins of sinners, that's really good news. And you ought to get in on that. Well, how? How do you get in on this offer of forgiveness of sins? Well, there's two ways we can answer that. That question, how. Uh, we might mean a couple different things by how. We might ask, for instance, on what basis can we have forgiveness? On what basis can we have forgiveness? And that's a great question. And the key here is this message is preached in Jesus' name. The message of forgiveness is authorized by Jesus and predicated on Jesus' work. Jesus' death on the cross made payment for sins. Even as Isaiah himself wrote in the passage we just read, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him that was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Consider your, your sins. The Bible is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us is a sinner. No one is exempted, myself included. Consider your sins. Consider the scope of them. Consider the magnitude of them. Perhaps you have you're cognizant of them, and, and you have done things that you feel are unspeakable. Perhaps you feel like you have done things that are beyond the pale. And perhaps you are a burdened by a weight of guilt and shame for some of the things that have transpired in your life. 
Jesus did not go to the cross as God in the flesh to die for a small number of little sins. God was on the cross in Jesus to die for the sins of murderers and rapists and kidnappers and the worst of humanity as we see it. If God cannot forgive a murderer and a rapist, he can't forgive the littlest of sins. Be assured that no matter what you have done in your life, no matter how severe it is, no matter who you've dishonored, no matter who you've disrespected, no matter what offense you've done in the eyes of the government or the eyes of men, it is not beyond the power of the blood of Jesus Christ on that cross. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and it can bring you peace. Consider your little sins. Maybe you, you think, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't murdered. I haven't raped. I haven't, I haven't killed. But Jesus is clear that, that if we have hated, if we have had enmity in our heart, if we've had disgust in our heart toward another human being, that it's as much as murder. Because isn't that hatred really at its root, a desire that that person was gone and away from us? Jesus says, maybe you've, you've never raped and maybe you've never cheated on your spouse and, and, and that's nice and all, but have you ever looked at another person with lust? Jesus says it's as if you've committed adultery because really your thoughts want to go there. You're no better, Jesus says. Your desperate need of repentance. Because ultimately the, the sin is, is not against when you, you if you hate someone. It's not a sin merely against that person. You are hating someone made in God's image. And your hatred is a contempt for God himself. Our God is a God of truth. His word is truth. And so you might dismiss the little things you've said as white lies. But your lack of commitment to the truth is not an offense against your boyfriend or a girlfriend who you said it looked good on even though it didn't. It's an it's offense against the God of truth who loves truth and who's passionate about truth. Don't fool yourself that your little sins are little. But they're immense because they're committed against an immense God. But... You can be forgiven on the basis of Christ's work. Not your own. Not your own work. Christ has done the work necessary for a person to be forgiven because he has paid the penalty in his death. How? So there's another way we could could ask that how question. Maybe the how question isn't so much on what basis can we have forgiveness, but how can we get access to this forgiveness? It's a good question, too. We know that we can have it on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, but how do we get in on it? And the access, Jesus says, is through repentance. Jesus said that repentance is for forgiveness. 
Some of the translations say that uh, they're, they're going to preach repentance and forgiveness. Uh, it's because they're tightly together, but I think the translations that say repentance for forgiveness are more accurate at this point. The repentance is for forgiveness, meaning that repentance leads to forgiveness. What is repentance? This is a word we throw around. What does that mean? Well, in short, it's life reorientation. Repentance is life reorientation. It means to forsake or reject your old way of life, your old way of doing things, how you oriented yourself in this world, and embrace a new way of life that's oriented toward Jesus. It involves changing the direction of your actions, changing the direction of your life, and also involves changing the thinking of your mind, confessing with God the things that are good that he says are good and and bad the things that he says are bad. It's a recognizing that Jesus is Savior and Lord and willingly surrendering your life into his hands as king and master. That's what repentance is. That I am no longer going to live for myself on my terms, in my way, based on my rationality of how I think things should be. But I'm going to live my life on God's terms, in his ways, on the basis of what he says about it and what he thinks about it. That's what repentance is. And there's this other key phrase in Jesus' words, to all nations. That means this message was not just for the Jews, but for all people everywhere. Which is good news because I don't see a lot of Jews sitting here this morning. I see a lot of Gentiles. That's another translation of that word nations is the Gentiles. The Jews categorized the world into people who were like them, Jews, and everyone else. Gentiles. Nations. And that means that everyone who hears me now, no matter your history, no matter your family lineage, your genealogy, no matter your your tongue, your language, your tribe, or your color, it doesn't matter. Everyone can get in on this forgiveness because of what Christ did on the cross and through a reorientation of your life, repentance, a surrendering of your life into his hands. Why don't you do that for the first time this morning? Finally, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The you here is emphatic. It could be in italics and bold here if that was a thing. It's as if Jesus is saying, and you, you are the ones who are going to preach this message. Faith in the resurrection leads to understanding of how the scriptures point to Jesus, and faith and understanding together lead to action. You are witnesses. And that becomes the theme of Luke's second volume, Uh, You you may know that the book of Acts is like part two of the book of Luke. 
And there, Luke records Jesus' followers being witnesses to the resurrection and preaching forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then in Syria. And by the end of the book, the message has reached the capital of Rome with no end in sight. And while the Bible does not record a detailed history of our apostles' travels, we have notes from early histories and traditions that give us some ideas. Like Andrew, who took the message to Scythia, the regions uh, around the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea that are filled with Turkish and Persian peoples. John, who lived to preach in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey, in Ephesus, and was exiled for a time on the island of Patmos. Or Bartholomew, who's reputed to have traveled to Armenia and even India with this message. Jude may have traveled as far as Libya with the good news. What's more, we know that before the A.D. 70, the gospel had reached Ethiopia through the ministry of Philip the Evangelist, who, who meets a, an Ethiopian who's apparently a Jewish man who's traveled to the festivals in, in Jerusalem, and he works in the court of the queen. And he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ and brings the gospel to Ethiopia. So this spread so fast that by the time the 4th century started, by 300, despite government opposition, with no weapons, and simply preaching the message, Christianity has sizable pockets in North Africa, from Morocco to Egypt, in Spain and France and Italy and the rest of Southern Europe, throughout Western Asia. It was an unstoppable message, despite the fact that it cost many men and women their lives. We who have faith in that resurrection that leads to an understanding of the scriptures pointing to Jesus are called to be those witnesses. But that would be an impossible task for us and it was an impossible task for those first disciples too. They needed power from on high so Jesus says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit that he had promised beforehand. And he says, Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And this takes place if you want to see the conclusion of that prophecy that happens in Acts chapter 2. The disciples are not going to be left alone. Jesus is going to leave them physically for a time until the day when he returns and he recreates the heavens and the earth, and the dwelling place of God will be with man forever and ever. But until that time, he does not leave his followers alone. He sends his Holy Spirit from the Father. And his Holy Spirit is a guide, a comforter, an encouragement. He's one who convicts us of sin pushes us to pursue righteousness, but also empowers us to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is so serious about this call to action that he does not leave us alone, but empowers us with the Holy Spirit for the express purpose of making known this good news that a dead and dying world burdened by sin and guilt, 
can find forgiveness on the basis of Christ's work on the cross. Christian, that is our burden in this life, is to bring God glory through the preaching of the message of his Son. How are we going to bring that message? Empowered by the Spirit. Look, if you are not a Christian, it's not going to be possible for you to do this. If you are not a Christian, let me suggest, repent. Surrender to Christ. He will empower you by His Spirit for this task. How are you going to make known His gospel this year? How will you be His witnesses this week? In your family, your schools, your workplaces, your apartment buildings, in your neighborhoods. You're called to proclaim a message of Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ glorified for the forgiveness of sins. A light to the Gentile that all the nations might be drawn to him. Let's be faithful to that calling in 2020. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins that was preached to us in Jesus' name that we have accessed by repentance. We thank you for your spirit.